0: welcome to the best of the left podcast with clips today from the young turks ring of fire and the bbc
1: Journal just had an editorial that Glenn Greenwald picked apart, and at first I saw Glenn's commentary and I, on it, and I thought, like you were saying the other day, bro. he's got to be exaggerating. The, it's a professor from Harvard, he, it's Martin Friedman, long known as a very, very conservative uh, uh, professor.
2: I thought That's impossible, there are no conservative professors, George Will says it is so.
1: <laughs> Friedman is the guy who argues that women are not equal of men. And then he makes an intellectual argument of it, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I'm and, interested in that. That sounds right.
1: <laughs> right. And so anyway, and I said he can't possibly be saying that w- that we should have one person rule, like that. It that sometimes you shouldn't follow the law. I'm like, he's Glenn Greenwald must be twisting. And although I trust Glenn a lot, I think he's a really smart guy, verging on brilliant. And but Is I said one of the seven, <laughs> one of the smart guys, seven yeah. smart guys in the country. You know what? Maybe. Right. I'll have to think about putting him on that list. Anyway, so I said, all right, I'm going to read this thing for myself. And it's long, right? And I read this long Wall Street Journal. and It's technical. It's legal. And the first third of it, I'm like, well, okay, he's saying you've got to balance things out. I'm like, that's my language. I like that. And then, boop, drops off a cliff. He's like, yeah, sometimes the rule of law is not enough. Sometimes you need a strong leader with energy. He kept talking <laughs> about energy. Energy. Yeah, no, he literally means, like, like, it's like a intellectual way of saying, just do whatever the hell you want.
2: Right, but do it aggressively.
1: Right, he takes it from Alexand- kept t- Alexander Hamilton, Tocqueville, and, uh, you know, his favorite. He And he, this is, they're so out Hitler? open, I is can't believe favorite? it. No, no, no. But, I mean, uh, uh, Machiavelli, he sure. quotes him not as a cautionary thing, but as a, this is the guide we should follow. He's not kidding. No. I'm like, are you kidding? And then he, at one point, he argues for tyranny. Look, so let's just—I'm going to—I'm going to
2: cut you off there for a sec to just make a broader point. Going back to some of the other things we have talked about, uh, uh, Professor Friedman uh, is bragging about sort of what we need is Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. I mean, Machiavelli is a is a is a uh, uh, has become a point of reference for out of control dictator, right? Right. Right. But Milton—not uh, uh, Milton. Milton Friedman? No, I've gotten no. them backwards. Yeah. No. Uh,
1: Professor Friedman.
2: <laughs> Professor <laughs> Professor Friedman. So Friedman says uh, uh is invoking Machiavelli. Uh, during the debate last night, uh, uh uh Mitt Romney called it outrageous that Patrick Fitzgerald went after Scooter Libby. And
1: I don't know, I, I don't, Oh, I'm the worst, I'm sorry guys, Harvey Mansfield.
2: Harvey Mansfield,
1: okay. Right, so that's forget the, professor. the <laughs> right. right. that's my bad.
2: Alright, well that, I've never heard of him.
1: <laughs> no, I have heard of him, and I got him confused. So
2: he's him. the guy who says that women yeah. are not, the, I don't alright, okay. right. so sorry. Sorry to, to Friedman. <laughs> professor Friedman, we're apologizing, we were dead wrong. So, uh, Professor Mansfield says this, conservative. You know, professor.
1: again, if we were conservatives, we'd be like, nope, it's Friedman. <laughs> and then, like, ma- wait, wait a minute, it's Harvey Mansfield, I'm, nope. It was freedom.
2: My, uh, Mitt Romney talks about it's outrageous, and the others I probably didn't disagree. And Fred Thompson, of course, is the biggest defendant, ran Scooter Libby's uh, 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 legal defense fund, uh, or has organized it. And uh, and many conservatives running for president have called it a selective prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jenk was on CNN Headline News last night with Michael Medved, the conservative uh, film critic and social and radio host. And Michael Medved was talking about how there's 34% who still like George Bush. They're wrapping themselves around George Bush. I just... I mean, you have three prominent conservatives wrapping themselves around George Bush, Scooter Libby, and Machiavelli. I don't know how you're in the party. I don't. I can see how you're conservative. I understand being a conservative. I do not understand how you can possibly be in a party that, that where this is the kind of conversations they're now having.
1: By the way, the headline for mansfield's article is the case for the strong executive under some circumstances the rule of law must yield to the need for energy the need for energy your dad probably likes that (laughs) i mean probably people some people make the mistake of thinking like okay i got it dude you really want the oil right (laughs) Right? but he doesn't mean it that way he means like a strong executive which he later masturbates to in the article like a strong executive is the kind of thing that you need for a democracy to, to flourish but without the freedom or the laws <laughs> or the laws. I mean the ma- look I, I, I'm I don't know if I'm going overboard on this in freaking out this much over it and he but but I, but I'm not because I can't believe my eyes. I can't believe The Wall Street Journal has an op-ed saying we should ha- live in a country where we're not ruled by law but were ruled by a strong executive, and what he calls one-man law, one-man law. And he refers to Machiavelli as arguing for a wise prince, and that we have the wise prince George Bush who can balance things out better than the rest of the system combined. And I'm like, on what planet, on what planet, one, would you make this argument about anybody, even if they were the wisest person on Earth? And argue that that's part of our constitutional system. And second of all, to say that that wise prince is George W. Bush.
2: Yeah, I don't think I. I you know, I, I I don't know a lot about Machiavelli. I, I t- most of the political science courses I took they were they were more modern. There was not sort of political or government theory courses. So I actually managed to get through college without really studying Machiavelli. But I doubt, from my limited experience, that Machiavelli ever referred to himself as the commander guy.
1: i mean look at parts of this editorial he says there's are emergencies when liberties are dangerous and law does not apply all right law does not apply look at this point you know it's there's my our my friend and our executive producer dave kohler is the world's biggest skeptic right and if i was listening to this show i'd be skeptical i'd say no way this he couldn't have written all that stuff I'm, you know what? I'll put a uh, link on the website to the article. You read it for yourself if you can get through the damn thing. Okay, It is stunning that they're doing this in open. Now, the second part of why it's stunning is if this was a kook professor out in the fringes, okay, or he's a legitimate professor, but he's by himself, he's got these crazy ideas, it's an interesting intellectual exercise, but no one cares. Okay, That's one thing, and it's a democracy. Everybody's allowed to have their opinions. But this is the governing philosophy of this administration this is what they point to you know the cheneys and the john use of the world the ones that actually wrote the torture policies that are run Al- this administration Al- Alberto they refer to mansfield and they're like mansfield is right this is their governing philosophy they, fa- guys, they th- found one quack
2: professor and they're like it's professor mansfield
1: no this is what I'm trying to get through to people, and, I, and just because they are so extreme, it is so hard to convince people that they are this extreme. That these guys don't believe in America. They don't believe in our system of government. These are not normal times. We have radicals in charge. And that's why when I say you can't negotiate with radicals, you can't compromise with radicals, you can't say, "Hey, follow the rule of the law." Sometimes, and other times, just violate it because you're the strong executive. You know,
2: we we it's not quite on point, but the 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 last the, one of the last blogs I wrote for AOL was on George Tenet because I was so stunned by George Tenet's performance on 60 Minutes, and then you did a little more research on it, largely brought to us by former CIA analyst Larry, State Department analyst Larry Johnson who was disgusted by Tenet. And so I I just included those quotes that Tenet had given prior to the Iraq War for this guy who said that these guys wanted the war and I didn't know where the hell they were coming from. And then he goes up and goes, oh, al-Qaeda and Iraq, they're the same thing, right? And I had uh, three friends say, "I, I liked George Tenet. I didn't know George Tenet had said that. George Tenet is not of the belief that we should ignore the laws, but no one knows still at this point all the things that these guys have done.
1: Okay, I'm going to quote a little bit more from the article because I, obviously I'm obsessed. Okay, because I just, I can't believe this is come to a point in America.
2: This is uh, Professor Manfield's, Mansfield's article.
1: Harvey Mansfield. By the way, before the show, I said to Ben, damn it, I forgot my notes at, the, at home. He's like, how is it going to matter? And I'm like, ah, Professor Friedman. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, so he says, he has the power of pardon, referring to the president, a power with more than a whiff of prerogative for the sake of public good that cannot be achieved. Indeed, that is endangered by executing the laws. Do you understand what he's saying there? Sometimes that you endanger the public good. Not only do you not help it, but you endanger it by executing the laws. So the president, whose whole job is to execute the laws, he's saying sometimes you're endangering people by executing the laws, so you should ignore them. It's also... He, th- let, me, let me continue here. He says, in stormy times, the rule of law may seem to require the prudence and force of uh, that law or present law cannot supply so he's saying the rule of law in stormy times not good enough and the executive must be strong and let me finish it off with my favorite quote and Glenn's favorite quote as well he says quote a free government should show its respect for freedom even when it has to take it away <laughs> ah, that's game set and match folks I mean there it is and this is the guy that they quote this is the governing philosophy of the Republicans a free government should show its respect for freedom even even when it has to take it away.
2: That reminds me instantly, it reminded me of all those uh, uh, out there, you know, horrible stories of abusive husbands, generally, right? I guess conceivably abusive wives sometimes, but generally abusive husbands who feel like they have to kill their whole family because they love them so much.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's the kind of argument they're making here. I mean, we'll, all right. So we'll come back to attorney, uh, the number two guy at the Justice Department, James Comey, and why he was testifying. But just know what you're up against. And that the right one of the reasons I like Greenwald is because he's dead on in in, in what he says is as a, as an implication of this. Not only are the guys in charge radical, but what drives us crazy. And this is why I make such a big deal out of the media is. The media in this country don't get that they're crazy. They treat them, they're like they're a normal party. Like, oh, it's the Republican Party of old. It's the Democratic Party. It's whatever. They're not normal. They're trying to take away our freedoms, and people go on like, oh, I guess sometimes freedom isn't a good thing. Strong executive, interesting idea.
3: really have no tolerance for people who demand the right to think for themselves. In fact, if you look at the psychological profile of hardcore, I mean hardcore GOP types, most professional shrinks are going to tell you that there's almost always a few common threads in the personality profiles of those die hard Republicans. They're joiners. They're almost hopeless, hopeless followers who have a personality quality that prevents them from challenging authority. It prevents them from challenging status quo. They can't help themselves. Independent thinkers are rare within the lockstep Republican ranks. So it's not much of a surprise when we hear stories about people like Paul O'Neill being fired as treasury secretary because he was vocal about the inevitable dismal disaster of unrestrained tax cuts for the wealthy. And we aren't surprised at all when three-star generals are relieved of their duties in Iraq because they're honest with the world about what a miserable failure our boneheaded commander in chief really is. The list is almost endless where independent thinkers within the GOP leadership have disappeared from public eye when they do the unthinkable. That is, to be original thinkers, independent thinkers, when they question authority, when they stand up to the pathetic power elite within their own GOP party, hardcore GOP types are terrified to ask questions of their leadership, no matter how dysfunctional that leadership proves to be. But the latest GOP trend surprises even those of us who are aware of that hopeless character flaw, that neurotic personality flaw that exists in GOP leadership and GOP followers. United States attorneys who refuse to goose step in formation with Little George's political gang are now being fired for their willingness to think on their own. Seven US attorneys have been fired in the last four months and they all had one thing in common. They were investigating political public corruption that was targeted at Republican politicians and underling thugs who work for those politicians. All of these US attorneys were appointed by Republican controlled White House, Republican controlled Senate and Republican controlled Congress. These were their guys. All of them had great job review reports by the Alberto Gonzalez Justice Department. In fact, 85% of all the prosecutions that were initiated by these Republican-appointed U.S. attorneys were squarely leveled at Democratic office holders, Democratic donors, Democratic fundraisers, and Democratic loyalists. These Republican U.S. attorneys were doing exactly what the GOP wanted them to do. But hey, within the ranks of the grand, very old party, it's unacceptable to even think for yourself, to think independently, even 15% of the time. That's why voters between the ages of 19 and 30 have abandoned the grand, very old party in droves. And that's why the grand, very old party will never be able to attract young, independent thinking voters. Sure, the grand, very old party still has a support base, but next time you're driving by one of those Chryslers with a Bush-Cheney sticker still in view, look in the window of that car and you're going to see a dinosaur, an intellectual cripple who's terrified to think. Terrified to ask questions or to confront authority. You're going to see an outdated artifact that's not even willing to stray outside the party lines 15% of the time. And you know what? If you're a Democrat, that has to make your future look bright.
4: Love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. No blinding light, or tunnels to gates of white Just our hands clasped so tight Waiting for the hint of a spark If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied Illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs If there's no one
5: beside you But we'll start today
6: with Philip Zimbardo, the American professor whose experiment into the roots of evil in 1971 caused a furore and who has more recently been involved in the legal fallout from Abu Ghraib. Uh, Philip, let's start off by reminding those who don't know about it or have forgotten about it about the Stanford prison experiment and, and why it was so controversial. You, uh, you basically took the basement of the psychology department at Stanford University and you turned it
4: into a prison. Yes, we did. Uh, the study was done way back in 1971, and in a sense, it was really more like a Greek drama than an experiment. It was what happens when you put good people in an evil place? Does the place triumph, or does the goodness of people dominate the evil place? And the sad conclusion is humanity lost that contest. Uh, uh, what was critical is we had um, 75 volunteers. These were students from all over America who happened to be in the San Francisco area finishing summer school, and we gave them battery of psychological tests and interviews. We picked two dozen who were the most normal, most healthy, young college-age students. And then the key to all experiments is we randomly assign them to be prisoner or guard. What that means is on day one, we knew that we had only good apples in the the bad barrel we were about to put them in. And did they know what they were going to be doing? They were told it's a psychological study of prison life. Uh, And the ones who were going to be guards, we we had them come down a day before, put on military uniforms, and and begin to do things so they felt it was their prison in which we were inviting prisoners. The kids who were going to play prisoners, we said, wait at home or in the dormitories. And unsuspecting uh, to them, we had the city police go around and do very realistic arrests because the key to the experiment was you wanted wanted people's freedom to be taken away from them rather than they come and surrender it because if they give it up, they can take it back. Uh, and essentially we began this experiment and nothing happened the first day it was boring because it's 1971 these are kid these are hippies anti-war activists civil rights activists they hated to be in uniform they hated to they didn't understand what the power was all about and prisons are only about one thing it's power guards want more prisoners want more but they never get it
5: mm-hmm.
4: but by the second day when the prisoners revolted then the guards said these are dangerous prisoners and each day after that, they escalated the dehumanization, the degradation, the abuse.
6: And so what sort of things were they doing by the by the worst parts of the experiment? Uh,
4: by the worst part, uh, halfway through, uh, uh, homophobia and, and sexual degradation rears its ugly head. And it always does when you have an all-male environment. Uh, and so they'd say, you see that, that hole in the, in the floor? You know, the kids are doing endless push-ups and all kinds of... Uh, Hey, you know fraternity hazing thing. Uh, your Frankenstein, your Mrs. Frankenstein. Put, say mm. walk like Frankenstein. Say you love him. Put your arm around him. Uh, and then finally they say to the uh, prisoners, bend over. Your female camels. Well, the prisoners' uniforms were smocks with no underpants, and we did that mm. purposely to, to feminize them rather than um, to minimize the masculinity. So, so but, but, and then what happened, just last thing, yeah. is then they tell the, the male guards, get behind them and hump them. Yeah. And so they're simulating sodomy in five days. Right. And at that point, we had to end the study.
6: Right, and so it lasts only for five days, and the thing starts to break down. Now, fast forward a long way, and you have Abu Ghraib. And you have similar sorts of things happening, and you become an expert witness for uh, on behalf of one of the accused um, by then prisoners but originally guards right. uh, chip um, and your case is that this you can't treat this man as an evil man who has behaved as an evil torturer because he was put into a situation by the military by the the surrounding authority system around the him the Bush administration yeah and, and that therefore, in essence, it wasn't his fault.
4: Yes. Uh, Abu Ghraib uh, is is a study in evil, and it's really a study in how systems create situations which corrupt individuals. So when, whenever you have this kind of, of abuse throughout the world, the system always blames the individual. So every police department that has a scandal, it's always a few bad apples. And what that does, immediately it takes the system off the hook. So when these, when these images surface, you know, they're they inexcusable, but, but they were not inexplicable. The visual images were identical to my Stanford prison study. And I knew we had we put g- really good apples in this bad barrel. But the administration, the military administration, the Bush administration, immediately said, few bad apples, rogue soldiers. It doesn't reflect on the military. Well, that's a lie. I mean, the abuses at Abu Ghraib were repeated in worse form throughout all of the prisons that America has in Guantanamo, Afghanistan, the right... The only th- difference was it was the trophy photos. That was the sin. They took the pictures of abuse and so they put they, themselves. So people knew in it.
6: about them. So, so, so your case was in essence that the wrong people were on trial. It shouldn't have been the guards. It should have been the people who put them there in the first place.
4: No, no, no. It's you are always personally responsible for your behaviour. Right. They ha- and they all admitted guilt. That is, they ha- they had to, they were responsible. So
6: this is not a way of absolving people no, no. of guilt.
4: No. Understanding behavior, and the, the theme of, of my book, The Lucifer Effect, is mm-hmm. understanding how good people turn evil, does not excuse it. It's not you know, psychology as excusiology. But essentially what it says is unless you understand the causes of such behavior, you can never change it. The, 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 the bad apples theory is comes from religion, comes from uh, 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 psychiatry, medicine, law. All of our institutions are focused around putting things in the individual's head. Pathology, guilt, sin, etc., and and then what you do is if you're benign you give them you reeducate them you give them therapy less benign you put them in prison or you execute them, and you know what evil never changes, it's only when you take a public health approach which says there is a vector of disease in a society in a particular place that we want to inoculate. Are people against it? That you that you change in that. So it's about
6: avoiding situations. If you avoid if you avoid situations which create evil circumstances, then you can you can draw away quite a lot of the evil.
1: And one of the times he came here, made a great point, and he, you know, he was guest hosting on Friday's show. He said, look, you know, people misunderstand what liberals are these days. He's like, He's like, my dad taught me what a liberal was. My dad fought the Nazis, he said, right? He said, you grab a musket, that's if you're a liberal, and what you do is you protect people who need protection. You get, you put the men and women and children behind you, the older men and the weak, and you stand firm, and you grab a musket, and you fight, Okay. You don't. Know, you don't go around being like. You don't let anybody push you around. You know what the, the Republicans are like? Nah. Who cares? Everybody for themselves. <laughs> ah, put the ch- children and the women and the old people and the poor and the sick. Put them all out there. Out there. Bootstraps. All for yourselves. No, a real liberal strong. He's a man and he stands up and he fights. And like Al Gore said in that sp- his speech at constitutional Hall that I love so much, our forefathers didn't die so we can give away our freedom to Al Qaeda. You're going to give away your first, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth amendment rights to Al-Qaeda like to, because of wusses like Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich and George Bush because they're so scared of a bunch of guys in a cave. They're not willing to fight. That They say, okay, all right, well, we lose. We lose. We'll give away our freedoms. Man, a real patriot is a liberal who stands up and fights. You know who were liberals? George Washington, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, just think about this for a second. They started a revolution. They started a, they picked up guns and started a revolution. That's how much they cared about their freedoms. They were were all willing to die for our freedoms. Like people, Republicans talk about that as if it's a platitude, as if it's just a talking point that then they can wrap themselves around and and then meanwhile give away those freedoms all those people died for. So they died for those freedoms, you're supposed to protect them, not give them away to
3: al-Qaeda.
0: As you stand, stand by me
2: so darling darling stand by me
4: won't you stand by me just as long as you stand stand by me
0: when the sky that we look
4: upon tumble and falls
5: and the mountains crumble
4: to
6: the sea. Other thing, just before we, we, we open this up, I must ask you about because you also look at the rare heroic characters in your book oh, yeah. who who stand out against uh, evil situations and don't behave in yeah, this way. Yeah. Yes.
4: So, so in all the research I've done, and the Lucifer effect presents a whole body of of scientific research on how the power of the situation can dominate individuals, but in all those situations, there's always a minority who resist. Now if all you do is resist, that gets you out of the situation. You have to go to the next step and challenge the system. That's what makes that's what makes you into a hero. So the argument I make is Heroes are ordinary people who do extraordinary deeds. We've erred in making heroes extraordinary people because then they're incomparable to us. And my whole approach now is how do we instill a heroic imagination in all of us, but especially in the next generation? So we all imagine there will be a situation in our lives when we, there are three paths. One path is the path to be a perpetrator of evil. The main path is to do nothing. And that's what most of us do. We're passive. Mm-hmm. And the third path is to do two things, take action. And stop being egocentric and be sociocentric. To be a hero means you act, and you act on behalf of others, rather than on behalf of of your ego, yourself. Jonathan Bate.
3: Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated by the the close parallels between the degrading things that the mock guards got your mock prisoners to do in the experiment and what happened at Abu Ghraib. But... What I found particularly interesting was how, asked about it afterwards, some of your guards said, well, we were just acting the role.
6: We were doing it to please Professor Zimbardo. We were good actors. But, of course, at Abu Ghraib, they weren't
5: actors.
3: But then I thought, maybe they were, not least because they had costumes with uniforms. And you said at the beginning that putting on the uniforms was part of it. So do you think this kind of dehumanisation that takes place in the guards is a lot of it to do with the act of putting on uniforms and then
4: assuming a role? Yeah, that, that's really critical, is that for exa- all war is about old men sen- sending young men to kill other young men. And the first step is you have to transform them externally. You put them in a uniform in more, quote, primitive cultures. They paint themselves, put on masks. But then when the war is over, it's against the law to wear your uniform when you are discharged, because we don't want you to keep being a killer. So we want you to be situationally specific killer. So that you want good boys, you want them to kill, and then you want them to be good boys again. The other interesting thing that, that you raised, John, is that it's the justification for evil. In Mein Kampf, Hitler begins by saying, in dealing with the Jewish question, I'm doing the Lord's work. No one in history ever said, I'm doing evil. It's I'm doing good. Uh, in America, the evil is all embraced by uh, the, ne- the ideology of national security. I studied tortures in Brazil. They had the same thing. It's national security on the enemy with socialists and communists, mostly professors and, and, and college students. Now, you know, now now it's it's the um, the uh, Islamic Muslim terrorists mm-hmm. during the Second World War. It was the communists. So it's always I mean, after the Second World War, it was the communist. So it's always an enemy.
6: M- Margaret Atwood, do you do you believe there's a, there are evil characters? Do you do you ever do you write evil characters, or do you basically buy the view that it's the situation that people are put into that turns them quite quickly into perpetrators of evil?
5: I believe that people behave evilly. There's no doubt about that. Um, novelists can approach that in various different ways, but novels are always about individuals. So sociological studies are about situations. However, no individuals exist without a system. They're all they're always within a society of some kind. What you described seemed a lot to me like like the fourth grade. <laughs> is is there some sense in which people put into these situations are reverting to their child selves with that child curiosity and? Uh, child amorality, in a way of just pushing it one step further to see what will happen. Is is there some way in which you know frog torturing when you're ten turns into people torturing when you're 22? Do, do, are Sorry, are people doing doing this acting out more childish impulses?
6: Adrian Mitchell saying there's there's no crueler place on the planet than the playground, um, yeah. well, probably
4: middle school. Uh, <laughs> 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 it might lots be lots, worse. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's that's really uh, I would say right on that. Um, that what you want to do when you're a teenager. Well, t- uh, John's talking about teenagers, but even before that, it's it's really beginning to deal with power mm-hmm. and that you realize you have very little, but suddenly you can have power by being in a clique, by being in a group, by, by being with the, the right clique, the the in-group. The re- in mm-hmm. uh, and that power is always threatened because other kids are going to have more or someday you're going to come in and you, you're dressed in the wrong way and suddenly you're dressed in last year's outfit. Uh, and I think that's, but imagine now suddenly you're put in a position where you have power. You're, you're a foreman, you're a manager, uh, you're the head of some taxi fleet. It doesn't really matter. Or you're head of, of, of the uh, uh, military reservist in the basement of Abu Ghraib. Yeah. And suddenly now here's this, chi- as Marcus says, this childhood dream. Now you have total power. And the people above you said, and you can do anything you want with it as long as you achieve this goal. We want to get information from these, these
6: Always, people. always hellishly dangerous, that situation. For, well, for it's it, without for limit. Person.
4: I mean, if yeah. you put people in a situation where where there's no top-down discipline, essentially the teacher has left the class. Mm-hmm. And in Abu Ghraib, the abuses occurred. In three months, there was never a senior officer ever went down to that dungeon. It was too dangerous. It was too filthy. It was too chaotic. So, So essentially, here you have... The cats away and the mice will play. Lindy Anglin said it was just fun and games. What was the big deal about it?
5: This is where the party ends. I can't stand here listening. To- This is where the party
3: ends. So look, let's start with the news right now. I think the, the, the news I want to start off, start with is Justice Scalia. Here you have Justice Scalia that used to be. Remember, he was the states' rights guy. He said that what we have to do is uh, we have to we we have to pay attention to state laws. That was it, except in Bush v. Gore. Except <laughs> except in Bush v. Gore. And now it's gotten worse. Now what? Now what Scalia has morphed into? is really nothing more than the corporate thug that everybody accused him of being during his confirmation hearings, what he was. Now he's trying to, he's trying to write laws in such a way that says that a state that wants to protect their consumers away from a, from a product that might be manufactured in you know, Italy, it might be manufactured in New York or Spain or wherever, that that state law does not have the right to protect their consumer. For example, let's say uh, Mary and Bob have a child named Ben. And Ben takes a pill, and the pill leaves him basically paralyzed from his neck down, which we actually have cases like this. That's why I'm a little familiar with it. And so so according to Scalia, the state doesn't have any right to say we have laws that we ought to be able to sue the manufacturer of that product that made the product because they knew or should have known how dangerous it was. Well, now, now where it comes to the corporate issues... Scalia is saying, no, you know, we're not going to really, we we shouldn't do that. What we should look to is something called preemption, and that is if the federal government has written anything where they have reviewed this product and they've actually analyzed the product or or the clinicals that were given over to them by the product, if the FDA, for example, has looked at that, then we can't, the state can't sue. The state can't, the, the state law is no good and that individual can't sue. Basically, the parents then have to simply pay the medical bills for that child for the rest of their lives, and the, the corporation gets away with not having any responsibility under the Scalia law. And, and just to stop you, because this was a recent case, this just went down last month, Oh, right? yeah. Well, well, last, no, no. Last month, what Scalia did is he took people's rights away in state court to be able to sue the manufacturer of a product that is inserted in the body, a, a medical device. For example, there are medical devices out there right now that are exploding and melting in outside of the heart where they're supposed to be pacemakers. They're supposed to be pacemakers that keep people alive. They actually are killing people. The point is, Scalia says, no, you know, we knew, the company basically admits they knew the product was defective. They didn't get it called back. I mean, the, the documents are overwhelming. But Scalia says that, no, under state law, you should not be able to, uh, to, to sue because the federal government looked at this and they didn't catch it. Well, of course, the, the, they didn't catch it. They had in, poops involved, like Daniel Troy, which is the second part of the story. Daniel Troy, you'll recall, is the Bush appointee. The first time that a president has actually appointed the head of the FDA, most of the time it's a civil servant uh process, but so Bush appoints Daniel Troy to the head of the FDA and Daniel Troy writes a consensus paper where he says that if the FDA has looked at it, then no matter what, how dangerous it is, no matter how bad it kills people or harms people. In state law, you can't sue over that dangerous product. Daniel Troy laid the groundwork. Now Scalia is moving into the second stage of it. And he's, trying to, he's trying to make the Supreme Court sway the Supreme Court in such a way to where people simply have no rights left. And this is the last part of the story, but it's important. Here it is. Alan Dershowitz, and because you have to understand who Scalia is you, you, to understand these judges it 's not important that you understand what their prior rulings have been it 's important that you understand where they came from
7: University of Chicago, one of the most conservative the Federalist society right
3: exactly Alan Dershowitz wrote a great book it 's called Supreme Injustice how the high court has, uh, how, the, uh, how the High Court hijacked the election in two thousand you probably remember that, but in there he talked about he talked about scalia 's father was a proud member of the American Italian Fascist Party and how he, got his, uh, how he got his doctorate at the Casa Italiano at, at Columbia. And what was important about getting your doctorate there is you had to swear an oath to Mussolini. Now, you would think I'm making this up. As a matter of fact, the first time we talked about this, people said that can't be. Go get Alan Dershowitz' book. It's called Supreme Injustice, How the High Court Hijacked the Election. Now, there's a second part to it. After uh, not only the fact was his father the head of the, uh, head of a fascist party, that little Scalia was actually sent to this, this kind of military school in New York, which is a place where many of the fascists have, were educated. I mean, this was kind of a family kind of thing. Send your little fascist child to the fascist college. And, you know, if you look at this, David... This is, this is over, overwhelming to me, but, but uh, Lawrence Britt, who you probably know, he's a political scientist. He, he was an expert on, uh, on fascism, and he came out with this, these standards. He said, when is it that we know fascism's taking place? He says, number one, when we have a powerful continuing expression of nationalism. Does that exist here?
7: Sounds a little familiar. How
3: about disdain for, the, how about disdain for human rights? Does that sound familiar?
7: Uh, you know, since nine hasn't
3: the U.S. been a- on the human rights watch list around the world? <laughs> yes, we are. How about supremacy of the military? Does that sound? Does that sound like it might kind of fit what, what's happening? It, it, it does when we have perpetual war. What about a controlled mass media? These aren't my points. These are this professor's that study this all his adult life. This is so, another. So, if
7: you had a hypothetical country, let's not call it America. Let's, no, let's call c- it Oceania okay. or <laughs> well, but other it's easy, country.
3: But it's easy to call it America right now. I mean, he goes yeah. in controlled mass media, then he says obs- obsession with national security. Then he says if you have a religious. And ruling elite that are tied together. Then he says, if you have a power, uh, if you have a power where corporations are protected and labor unions are suppressed or eliminated, if you have disdain for intellectuals and the art, if you have an obsession for crime and punishment, if you have rampant cronyism and corruption and fraudulent elections. Now, now listen, I'm not making this up. This is this, this is a guy who has studied fascism, his a, most of his adult life. He fa- he he focused on Germany and Italy. And his name is Lawrence Britt, but he has this 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 list of things that says if these things are occurring, chances are you are living in a fascist state. And and
7: the frightening thing is, you know, this was predicted back, wasn't it? Said that fascism would come to America wrapped in a flag with a cross.
3: Yes, Upton I, Sinclair.
7: Upton Sinclair. Yeah. Where, these you could see this coming years and years ago, but no one ever actually expected that we would get to an America where all, you just ticked off a list of indicators, Mike, that virtually every one, if people are being honest, you can look around today and we see the truth of it. 40 years
3: ago
1: A friend of mine said, you know what, I just realized, I look back through history, and conservatives have been wrong about everything. (laughs) It's kind of a funny comment, you say, my gut reaction is, no, that's crazy talk, right? Uh, But then when you look back and you go, oh, wait a minute now, they tried to stop women from having the right to vote, they tried to stop uh, blacks from having the right to vote, they tried to keep blacks as slaves, conservatives not republicans okay the party identification has changed throughout time right but conservatives versus liberals whereas liberals agitated to change all these things uh... you know and then landowners etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean it goes all the way back to the beginning of the country and at every step of the way conservatives fought against change that was positive and needed in america and liberals fought for it. and on the one hand that's uh, wrong because, and, I, and I'll tell you how it's wrong. Because as always, you need balance. And on the micro issues, how much government regulation you need in the financial industry, for example, you can't just say, "Hey, liberals are always right, so we need more and more and more and more regulation." Now you have to find out where it is. And sometimes the country is overregulated, and you need uh, conservatives are "quote unquote" right at that point in time about that issue or over taxation or the size of the government or welfare reform etc. So the, my friend is wrong when he says conservatives have been uh wrong about every single issue and liberals have been right about every single issue. Uh obviously. And but when pressed further his clarification is pretty much right, which is that on every major issue, major society changing issue in America, conservatives have been wrong and liberals have been right. It's almost a definitional thing because hardly have we ever changed for the worse. And so usually conservatives are against change and they want to keep the tradition and the culture as it is. So they fight, 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 no, 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 women they're not equal to men, they shouldn't have the right to vote. Then no. oh. they get swarmed over and they lose, and America improves for the better. The liberals were right. Black shouldn't have the right to vote, no, they don't understand, no, no no Black shouldn't be quarterbacks, whatever it is, right? Over and over again on the major America changing society changing issues, conservatives have fought against it by their nature and liberals have fought for it. When you put it that way, you go, Man, it kind of sucks to be a conservative. You're the backwards ass that's holding everything up. (laughs) Okay. And liberals have fought for change that has made this country better. Now, that's on the macro issues. On the micro issues, and depending on what time you live in, it might be a different story. So, In the end, of course, balance wins out. But also, in the end, change wins out. Positive change wins out. And 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 Obama is hopefully alluding, and not hopefully, he is alluding to that kind of positive change that's made America better. And that's my one of the principal reasons why I no longer call myself a former conservative. Because apparently, I was never really conservative. I might have been a Republican, but I wasn't conservative because I never fought against that kind of change. I always thought uh, Martin Martin Luther King was my hero, right? And I always thought. All those movements were terrific. And by the way, you know, it's not just in how we go forward in race relations. It's also true right now of gay rights as well. You know, oh, no, no, we can't have gay rights. We can't have gay marriage. Oh, no, it's tradition. It's culture. You're fighting against the culture. It's wrong. Uh, gee, I wonder who's going to be right on that one. Gee, I wonder who's going to win and who's going to look like the heroes and who's going to look like the fools uh, in, as history goes forward or as the future goes forward. Of course, we're right and they're wrong. And then you'll chalk up another one to conservatives being wrong wrong and liberals being right. And go, huh, I wonder why
4: it keeps happening that way. And
0: you're
1: wrong
4: if you agree with Sean Hannity. If you think that pride is about nationality. You're wrong. You're wrong when you imprison people turning tricks. And you're wrong about trickle-down economics. Do you think that punk rock doesn't mix with politics? You're wrong. You're wrong for hating queers And eating steers If you kill for the thrill of the hunt You're wrong about wearing fur And not hating that culture Cause she's a
3: cunted cunt About 150 years ago, a political party emerged that completely took over the country. It offered incentives for the rich, controlled most of the media, and had a strong relationship with the evangelicals of their time. No, I'm not talking about Republicans. This was the Whig Party of America. The Whigs dominated the White House for almost 12 solid years before finally cratering because of divisions among party faithfuls, but what really caused the demise of the Whigs is that the public abandoned them and almost everything they stood for. 150 years later, few people are even aware that there was such a thing called the Whig Party in the United States, and I make this prediction today. 150 years from now, the Republican Party will be nothing more than an interesting topic in a history book, an obscure, unheard of ideology that went down as a perfect example of bad government, poor leadership, and rampant government corruption. More Americans now identify themselves with the ideals and the principles of the Democratic Party than they do with the Republicans. In fact, half of Americans now identify themselves as Democrats, while only 35% say that they can call themselves Republicans. The grand old party today is dying. The term Republican is no longer associated with great men like Abraham Lincoln or Dwight Eisenhower or Teddy Roosevelt. Instead, when people hear the word Republican, they think of convicted criminals like Jack Abramov and Bob Nye and Duke Cunningham. Or soon-to-be convicted GOP criminals like Steve Grouse and Brent Scowcroft. They remember pedophiles like Mark Foley. They remember religious frauds like Ted Haggard. They see images of millionaires like Dick Cheney getting richer off the death of Americans. They think of election thieves like Karl Rove or just dumbed-down leadership coming from people like George W. Bush. Scandal after scandal has rapidly ripped its way through the Republican Party until voters are embarrassed to even admit that they once had a Bush-Cheney bumper sticker on their Humvee. Americans no longer want to be aligned with a party that's destroying the planet and actually offering extra tax breaks to companies who are most responsible for that destruction. Soccer moms, they no longer want to be associated with a party that's led us into a war with no end in sight, where thousands of our fellow Americans have died and more continue to die every day needlessly. Soccer moms can connect all the dots and they see that it's going to be their son or their daughter who's next in line to increase Cheney-Halliburton profit margins. People are ashamed to be a member of a party that's willing to cripple our civil justice system so GOP big shots can avoid being prosecuted by their own U.S. attorney appointees. And Americans who once called themselves grand old party types have become downright disgusted and embarrassed to be sharing their party with hate mongers like Ann Coulter or Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity or Glenn Beck and the rest of their radio ilk. If you look at any poll available to the public today, you're going to see a trend on virtually every single issue that Americans think is important. They now favor the Democrats to handle that issue better than the Republicans. People are abandoning that disastrous version of conservatism that now defines a failed Grand Old Party. It seems like ever since the American public started to figure out that Iraq was based on a GOP lie, that same public has been willing to look closer at a rotting log that's kicked over a little more every day that the GOP occupies the White House. What they see under that rotting log is no surprise to those of us who followed the Grand Old Party story these last 12 years. And I really believe even the casual observer these days is a little surprised to see the way that vermin under that rotting log have begun to run for cover. You can almost hear those GOP loyalists today actually saying, Oh, if only we could recapture those grand old days when Richard Nixon, an honorable GOP leader, ran our party. Well, look at
5: all those fancy clothes. But these could keep us warm just like those What about your soul, is it cold, is it Straight from the mold and ready to be sold? Cars and phones and diamond rings, bling bling Those are only removable things And what about your mind, does it shine on? a concern you more than your time gone the wind gone everything gone, give it down gone be the birds when they do not want to sing gone people all awkward with their thing gone okay let's go with
1: jacobins <laughs> okay doesn't sound quite right but anyway uh, these are the guys that took over after the french revolution and they were in favor of liberty the problem was they got a little carried away and they started viewing everything as liberty versus tyranny and everything was a war between liberty and tyranny and it led to what is now known as the terror <laughs> the reign of terror and where would they unfortunately wind up putting a lot of their political enemies to the guillotine they're the ones that came up with the guillotine that was clever or actually they're the ones that used it a lot for on their enemies so one of the things that they immediately did when they decided it was a war between liberty and tyranny, and of course they were the good guys, they were on the side of liberty was uh let's see if we can guess it. Yep, preemptive war. Preventative strike on Austria. Ungur offensive. I'm sure I've said that wrong as well, but I'm having fun. Okay, so they started an offensive war against Austria because they were in favor of tyranny and the French were in favor of liberty. They had to. What could they do? But once they started the war, well, then they got to turn internal. You can't have internal enemies, they're the most dangerous. So, uh, by the way, one of them warned them. Uh, Brissot said, No one likes armed missionaries. Like, if we we're going to pass, you know, we're going to pretend that we're spreading liberty, people don't like armed missionaries. Later, he changed his mind and thought, Yeah, let's keep starting those wars and killing those uh, political enemies that we have. But he was right in the beginning. So they invade Austria and then they go to root out domestic political dissent. So they permit, as this uh, editorialist says for the New York Times, they promoted their political program through a tightly coordinated network of newspapers, political hacks, pamphleteers and political clubs. Mm, Heritage Foundation, Weekly Standard, American Enterprise Institute sound a little familiar. Uh and the true patriots were those who wore badges of patriotism like the liberty cap on their heads or a red, white and blue rosette on their hats or even on their lapels. Where have I seen that before? Where have I seen that before? By the way, when the Bush guys come up with the liberty caps, that's when you know you got to run for the hills because <laughs> the guillotine is next. All right. Then what do they do? I mean, look, it's it, every Tyrannical system has the same exact blueprint. We've told you about it in Germany in the past, we've told you about it in relation to other countries. In 1792, the Jacobins, Jacobins, I'm sorry, someone will correct us, decided the next thing to do was what they called domiciliary visits, butchering every single word today. That was visits to your domicile, to your home, warrantless searches. Warrants—that's a pain in the ass. Look, liberty doesn't have time for warrants, so they went to warrantless searches. Where have I seen this movie before? Where have I seen it? And they said, "You know why they justified it?" Quote: "It was when the homeland is in danger." Hmm. Where have I seen that before? Okay. And then uh, they decided, you know what? Uh, if you have nothing to worry about, unless you're a conspirator Here's a quote: "This severity is alarming." Meaning, because they're getting more and more severe in their actions. This severity is alarming only for the conspirators, only for the enemies of liberty. And then here's a classic line. I mean, can't you just hear George Bush saying this? No liberty for the enemies of liberty. That's when they took everybody's rights away. They said, no, well, if you're an enemy of liberty, you don't deserve liberty, and I decide who's the enemy of liberty, so no liberties for the enemies of liberties. Can't you just see them saying it? And then came the guillotine. And by the way, one last final note here. You know where the word terrorist comes from? Doesn't come from the Middle East. It comes from France during the reign of (laughs) Terror. And the people who uh, did the Jacobins, who did the Reign of Terror, were called terrorist, the terrorists, the guys who thought there was a war between liberty and tyranny. And decided that there should be no liberties for the enemies of liberty. And the ones that started the offensive wars and going into barging into people's houses without court orders and taking away their rights. Where have I seen this movie?
0: How's it going, everybody? So uh, the the day has finally come. Uh, you can finally inhale again. Uh, you can be assured you can finally get a, a good night's rest tonight. Your appetite should be returning shortly. And um, and and because today is the day that you find out that yes, it's true. Uh, I've come back. To host the show, I know uh, the past two weeks have been tough as, uh, as the future uh, of the show has been uncertain uh, after Billy's departure. But uh, but here we are. Um, thanks so much to Billy. He did a fantastic job with the show. Uh, ran it for ten months straight, which I was shocked to find out a couple of days ago. I had to check my calendar to actually see how long it had been since I had. Produced my last show, and uh, it was ten months, and, and Billy took over and ran the show for ten straight months. So fantastic, amazing job. Uh, he has other projects uh, to to move on to. Um, maybe had some uh, some burnout issues, and uh, and boy, does that sound like the most reasonable and normal thing in the entire world to me. Um, <laughs> and uh and so we wish him well obviously and uh and he, he'll he he'll remain on and hang out behind the scenes a little bit with the show but um but certainly no no ill will about him not being able to to remain the host so anyways uh yeah so 10 months um uh, speaking of which in the last 10 months we may have uh gained some new listeners who have no idea who i am aside from um kind of that disembodied voice that would come on and and tell you to contact the show or uh, uh, you know give us good ratings on iTunes and that sort of thing. Well uh, my name is Jay. I uh, created the show started producing it uh, in very early 2006 and did it for about a year and a half straight but during the time we we built up an audience we built up a community and and exactly what I hoped would happen did happen Uh, a community of people sprung up and they were able to help not only produce the show but help gather clips for the show um and and there was for a time a really solid great uh vibrant active community at the best of left community forums and i mean it was the absolute golden age of best of left podcast things were running exactly how they were supposed to be running with the audience being an integral part of the show um you know obviously with any given individual no one could ever expect that that someone remain a volunteer uh, indefinitely or even for a long time because people's time is very valuable and when they got to move on they got to do something else they have other priorities they got to go and so that's what happened. And uh, and so, you know, from our pool of our entire audience, we had a certain number of people who stepped forward and, and really helped make this show run. Uh, and they did it for as long as they could, and then didn't anymore. And um, and so we've tried. We've kind of been struggling behind the scenes here. How do we get people involved with the show? How do we get people excited about the show? And and want to be a part of it rather than just a con- consumer of it and uh, and it's tough I mean it's really tough um, but we, we recognize that getting help from the audience to produce the show is the only way the show can be sustainable it's not reasonable to expect individuals uh, either Billy or myself or anyone else who may come after me uh, to produce the show and, and put in all the work because it just takes your entire life it takes all of your free time um, to do it, and it's it's just not something uh, any, anyone can do unless they were getting paid for it, basically. Which we're not, believe me. So, um, uh, a couple of months ago, Billy came up with a fantastic idea for the raffle. Uh, which, I mean, in, in its purest form, is basically a financially based incentive program to get people involved in the show. Which, was awesome. I mean, it was amazing that, that Billy stepped up the way he did. He donated the money himself. He donated the time. He made the sweatshirts. He made, um, no, excuse me, I mean, he made the sweatshirts. He, he paid for the iPod and he created a raffle system. You know, join in, send us clips, help the show, and enter to win. And it worked. You know, people got excited, people got involved. Um, and it was great. He said, you know, this is how the show is supposed to run, like, this is, it was so easy to produce the show when you had clips flowing in that you didn't have to gather yourself. When the, when the work can be spread over many people, then no one has to do very much work, and the quality of the show goes up, and the stress of the producers behind the scenes goes way down, and it's a win-win for everyone. So, So we've been struggling with how do we get that to work? How do we reach critical mass where uh, we have a base of volunteers vibrant enough that it's okay to lose one or two or several because of course you're going to lose volunteers when their time is more valuable to them and, and they need to go off and do other things. So how can we create a system where we have enough volunteers helping to uh, produce the show and and gather clips for the show that we can lose a few people knowing that there are more waiting in the wings to take over Um, and it's been tough it's been a tough struggle trying to figure out what that is and you know I've been knowing in the back of my mind the show works best on all levels when the community is involved so how do we get them involved and then it struck me just really not long ago at all why not just ask you? Why not use the power of you know thousands of brains being better than one or two, and say, give me some ideas, give us ideas. You know, if you, you know, If you think, I wish I could help, but I don't have the time to volunteer, but you have an idea of what might be something we could do to encourage others to volunteer their time if they do have the free time, then just take the time to write me an email. Um, I mean, there's there's something out there that we can do that will inspire enough people to get involved and stay involved with the show that we can keep it going indefinitely. Uh, if if I'm if I'm not the producer indefinitely, someone else can step in and be the producer. Um, we can have several people producing the show, and then we can have a vast uh, pool of people donating clips to keep the show going because i mean this this show is where we produce in real time we we try to use news stories that are fresh it's not always possible but we try to you know keep up with the news and our listeners are consumers of news (laughs) you know our listeners love politics love to be involved love to be informed and you're out there listening to other stuff and you hear great stuff all the time that would fit perfectly in this show, but we don't hear it, so we don't know about it, we don't clip it out, we don't produce it into a show. But if you if you sent it in to us, we would. So how do we create that system in a sustainable way that gets people involved? Um, so just like the old days, uh, contact me uh, the way you always have been able to Sympathizer at gmail.com that email address is also on our website at bestoftheleftpodcast.com and uh you know send me ideas send you know help help us producing the show figure out how to produce it better help us figure out what we need to do to make this show work for the long haul and uh and you know send me any other comments you like uh how much you like the show hate the show um how disappointed you are we didn't have uh, some other celebrity guest host coming in to take over after Billy and that it's just me Um, anything you like but yeah uh, that's it so as I've said many times in the past uh, this has been Jay uh, coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the border although not very far outside the border of Washington DC this has been the best of the left podcast podcast Coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com.
5: dot pants black and white. Took apart a picture that was right. shiny sheet.